take just a moment to thank you again for inviting me to be with you this week. I've thoroughly enjoyed the uh, association. I've enjoyed uh, renewing old acquaintances and making new ones. And it's always an encouragement to, to be with this, this group. I appreciate you. I appreciate your stand for the truth and your efforts in this community to, to let your light shine and to make a difference in, in Franklin. I would encourage anyone and everyone who might be visiting and trying to decide whether or not you're going to place membership to just do it. You will not regret it. It'll be one of the best decisions you've ever made. Uh, you've got some of the best elders in this congregation you'll ever find, some of the best deacons. Uh, you've got one of the best preachers, one of the best preacher's wives, and good preacher kids. It's just the ideal package. So uh, go ahead. Do it today. Place membership. You will not regret it. And, and I can say that with all sincerity. I, I, I know about the stability that's in this congregation. And you've got, you've got brethren that have been here for years. You've got brethren here who have been faithfully serving God, not only here, but in other places for years. For years. So there's just a lot of stability. And, and again, I, I say that. That's, that's my way of saying to the congregation, I appreciate you, because I would wholeheartedly recommend to anyone who is contemplating placing membership to do so. Come to Coleman, visit us anytime. We'd love to see you. Uh, Paula does, again, regret greatly that she was not able to come. Uh, she grew very close to so many of you, and she'd love to get to know that some of the new folks. Um, but, you know, while, while I've been um, uh, working hard, eating and, and, and preaching and doing all those difficult, demanding tasks, somebody had to stay home and take care of the lighter responsibilities of, of, of getting the kids ready for school and, and, and putting them to bed at night and getting their homework done and and, and cooking supper. I mean, I much I would have much rather stayed there and let her come here to preach, but you know, brethren, how that's just not right. So uh, I really appreciate my wife. I really do. Uh, she's a, she is wonderful, and you know that if you if you know her. If you have felt uncomfortable this week with some of the points that I have made in this series of lessons. I want to tell you that you're not alone. It, it finally occurred to me while preaching some of these lessons why I did not preach this series again. I preached it 12 years ago and did, never preached it again. And, and the reason for that is because I find myself in an area where I do not feel comfortable because I'm speculating. Even though I believe that when I issue an opinion, it is based upon solid biblical truth. When you're discussing the spiritual realm, let's face it, we are talking about something that we have very little knowledge about, relatively speaking. Now, we've seen this week that the Bible does have a great deal to say about angels, but again, because of the fact that we are on this side of eternity, and we're not in that domain, even when we speak about the subject and, and we base our, 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 our thoughts upon Scripture, 
there's still some conjecture involved, and, and I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm a CPA. I, I want to deal in, 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 in hard, cold facts and things that are concrete. And I'm not doing that when I speak on, on the subject of angels. I can put my finger on the truth when it comes to the subject of baptism or the New Testament church or the worship and the work and the organization of the New Testament church or, or marriage or, or how to raise children from a biblical perspective. I can, I can get my, my arms around those things because I live in that world. And the truth is very clear on, on so many of those matters. And again, even though I believe the Bible speaks in clear terms about angels, it's, it's, it's a subject that is foreign to us, truly a subject that is alien to us because of where they're at and because of where we live. So again, if I've said some things that make you feel uncomfortable, just realize that, that I, I, I share in that feeling. I, I share in that, that level of, of discomfort. We've been talking about the, the work and the activities of angels. I'm going to veer a little bit from, from my outline for just a moment. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to go with me first to Matthew chapter 18. I actually had this, this referenced in, in one of my lessons, but I, I, didn't, I didn't go there, but I want to now. What about the, uh, the concept of guardian angels? That idea is taken from Matthew 18 and verse 10 where Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continuously behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, the reference is possessive in nature. Note that. Jesus said their angels in heaven. He didn't say the angels in heaven, but he said their angels in heaven. It is a possessive reference that Christ makes to angels. And it seems to suggest that there, there is, is some measure of concern being exercised by angels on behalf of those living here on this earth. Now, let me, let me say this about this reference. It's important to bear in mind the context. When, when Jesus uses the, the phrase, these little ones, I don't believe he's talking there about children. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus was asked the question, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He calls the child to himself. He sets the child before him. And then he says in verse 3, Truly I say to you that unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he uses a child to illustrate the character, the innocence, the humility that is required of one who would come into covenant fellowship with God. But then he continues in the discussion, and he notes or says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. In verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. I believe here he's talking about adults. He's talking about children of God who are being influenced by other Christians in such a way that they stumble. 
And so Jesus uses a child to teach principles that are applicable to us as adults. And so when we get then in, in, into the latter part of the chapter in verse 10, he says again, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, that is, one of these who believe in me, a, a perhaps babe in Christ, do not put a stumbling block before that child of God because their angels in heaven continuously behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. I do not believe, I do not believe that we each have an angel assigned to us. I don't believe that because this verse doesn't necessarily teach that. But I do believe that what it is referring to is that community of angels, those ministering spirits. I believe what he's saying here is that you need to be as concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ as that community of angels in heaven. You need to be as concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ as the angels are concerned about your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've seen, based upon our study this week, the great concern and interest that angels have in us here. Now, does, does that preclude the possibility of angels being agents of God's providence? No. I do believe. I can't prove it. Don't ask me to prove it because I can't prove it. I can't prove it because uh, it's something that happens in the spiritual realm and it's something that I cannot witness with my eyes. But I do believe, based upon everything I've studied in the Scriptures, that angels are God's agents of providence. Let me ask you to go with me to the book of Acts, the latter uh, part of this New Testament book of history, I don't want you to look at what I believe is one of the best examples of providence in the Scriptures. It's a, it's a reference to the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 23. In this chapter... Paul finds himself in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin Council. And in verse 11, we see the Lord standing at the side of Paul. And the Lord says, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now the promise of the Lord to Paul is, you're going to Rome. You're going to be in Rome. So whatever happens to Paul between this point in time and the time that he arrives in Rome, whatever happens between those two points in time, from Paul's perspective, should not be a concern to him because the promise has been set in stone that you're going to find yourself in Rome. Now, in verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. 
in verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and he entered the barracks, and he told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Leave this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. Now, this is the beginning of a series of events that will ultimately result in Paul, under heavy Roman guard, being transported to Caesarea and ultimately making his way to Rome in fulfillment of the promise that Christ made to him. But look at what's happening. Forty Jews have bound themselves under an oath. And they have entered into a conspiracy to kill Paul. How is God going to prevent that from happening? Well, it just so happens. It just so happens that Paul's nephew is in the right place at the right time to hear about this ambush. Now, how did that happen? That was providence. There was nothing miraculous about that. There was nothing miraculous about the way this news found its way to the Roman commander and how he then assembled these soldiers who transported Paul to Caesarea. Nothing miraculous about any of that. It was all providence. It was providence in fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to Paul that he would go to Rome. Now, based upon other passages of Scripture that we see, where angels are used by God to execute His will, angels are used by God to provide protection, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that in this case, angels were at work behind the scenes. Don't ask me how. There's no evidence that they took on the, the form of a, of a man and in some way worked here. There's no evidence for that. But I believe in some way God, in working out his providence in the life of Paul, could have used angels to carry out that providence. In some way, the angels could have had an influence upon Paul's nephew such that he was in the right place at the right time to learn about that, am that ambush. I don't believe that just happened. I don't believe that was chance. I believe that was providence. And I believe God still works that way today. Can't always understand it. Can't always explain it. Can't always put our finger on it. But when we pray to God, and, and we see promises in Scripture that God has made to us about taking care of us and watching over us and, and, and being there for us. How does, he, how does He do that? How does He respond to our prayer? Well, He responds in providence. And again, I, I just believe that God can use angels to work that providence out. Now, let's talk about some of the, uh, the other roles that angels played in the work and their activities. We see that in, in the Bible, angels played a role in the revelation of God's will. There will be repetition in the points that we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm not going to ask you to go back and look at the verses again that we've already reviewed, such as Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. In those particular references, we see where an angel communicates with Joseph about Mary first, that she was pregnant, she was with child, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, 
we then see where the angel communicates to Joseph that Herod's going to attempt to put that child to death. And then later, after the danger has passed, again an angel communicates to Joseph and tells him to go back home. He goes back and he settles in, in the city of Nazareth. There is an angel being used as an agent of God's revelation. In the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, and I will ask you to turn to this passage with me, if you have your Bibles, in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin Council. And he makes some, some, some very scathing remarks about these, these Jews to whom he was speaking. He says to them in verse 51 that you are stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are who, who are doing just as your, your fathers did. But then down in verse 53, he says, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The angels, in some way, played a role in the revelation of God's will, that will that we know as the Old Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, where if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and this is immediately after that passage, chapter 1, verse 14, where he says that they are ministering spirits. He's now making a reference to the Old Covenant, and he says the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. So again, we see that the angels played a role in the revelation of God's will as it came to be known under the Old Covenant. We've also seen in the book of Daniel that angels were used by God to reveal his will to that, that prophet. God used an angel in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts when the apostles were in prison. He used an angel. He sent an angel to the apostles and instructed the apostles through that angel to continue to preach the gospel. In the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, and we've already looked at that passage, God sent or used angels in a vision to bring about the series of events that brought Peter and Cornelius together so that Cornelius' household could hear the gospel preached by the apostle Peter. Now, the real lesson, I believe, to to be derived from this, this particular point is, is similar to those that we've already stressed. God's children, we should take great comfort in our knowledge of God's past dealings with men through angels. This, this is a clear manifestation of the great concern that God has for his children. He shows that concern in that he uses these, these ministers and, and these servants of his, he uses them to make it certain that we have a full understanding, a complete understanding of his will. Now, I also need to stress, and this is why I quoted Hebrews chapter 1 and, and Jude verse 3, we have the will of God as spoken through Christ. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth. The angels did not preach the gospel. That's not the point that I'm making here. Angels were only involved in some peripheral way at various points in time in the revelation of God's will. We come to know the complete will of God, that will as it has been communicated to us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But putting all that together again, you see that God wants us to know what his will is. 
And we, we should, we should uh, have a mutual desire to want to know that will. We should want to know the will that God has revealed to us. I almost left this next point out um, because it's, it's kind of deep. In the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, and, and there's a very valuable point that, that I'm going to make, and I'm going to spend as much time on this, this point as any, I love the book of Revelation, by the way. It's uh, When I finally got to the point that I was brave enough to study it, 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 and finally got to the point where I decided I wanted to see the big picture, I wanted to see the, uh, the forest and not the trees, when I studied the book of Revelation, that's when it really started having meaning to, to me in, in my life. It's just a, just a very powerful message that God has for uh, Christians uh, suffering and under persecution. But in the book of Revelation, John sees an angel in the 20th chapter, and that angel is receiving authority over Satan and his domain. Chapter 20, verse 1, John writes, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed, and after these things he must be released for a very short time. Before we look at this passage more closely, it's, it's, it's needful to consider the meaning behind the imagery of the abyss. And the key to this passage is found in the ninth chapter. So I'll ask you to go over there with me. Ninth, the ninth chapter of the book of Revelation. In the ninth chapter, we, we see the fifth trumpet sounded. And these were trumpets that signified the impending judgment that God was going to bring against the Roman Empire. And I think that's important in understanding Revelation chapter 20. The message that God is communicating, again, seeing the big picture, is that the Roman Empire is persecuting the church. Behind the Roman Empire is the devil. The devil was using the Roman Empire as his agency of persecution against God's children. But the message of Revelation is that the devil will be defeated and that defeat will be demonstrated, it will be manifest in the fall of the Roman Empire. Every time you read a book of history and you see a reference to the fall of the Roman Empire, you praise God for it because that happened in response to the prayers of, of saints who were being persecuted by the Romans. Revelation chapter 9, verse, verse 1, The fifth angel sounded, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. The star that fell from heaven was Satan. Verse 2, He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the, and the air were darkened in the smoke of the pit, and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God 
on their foreheads. So the only ones who would be affected by this judgment would be those who were not Christians. Satan is being set free. He is being set free by God as a means of judgment against sinful Rome. Sin is becoming its own punishment. Sin is becoming its own punishment. Satan is given authority in this chapter to unleash darkness, that is, demonic forces, that would inflict pain upon those not in fellowship with Christ. In Luke chapter 8, verses 27 through 31, we'll not take the time to go there. The reference is for your review. The abyss referred to the dwelling place of demons. The abyss is the dwelling place of demons. Satan, again, is being given free reign. You say, well, why would God do that? Well, again, God is, God is letting sin become its own punishment. And the objective was to bring about repentance. In verse 20 of Revelation chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can, which can neither see nor hear nor, nor walk. The purpose of the judgment was to bring about repentance. God was using sin. He was using sin to punish sin. You say, well, how is that? That's, that's seen very clearly in the first chapter of the book of, of, of Rome. Romans. Paul's not writing about Rome. He's, wrote, he's writing about sinful Gentiles. But you see in that chapter where sin becomes its own punishment. Revelation chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He's using sin to judge sin. In verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, And just as they did not see the fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. He's writing of the Gentiles, they refused to have a knowledge of God. And he's saying the reason they sunk deeper into sin is because God let them. He was judging them with sin. And again, that's what we see here in, in the book of uh, Revelation. In Ephesians chapter 2, and again, we're, we're dealing with the, the spiritual realm, so I want you to, to, to see how all this, this comes together. In Ephesians chapter 2, notice the language of the Apostle Paul. How does he write about our former lives in sin? Paul writes, Ephesians 2, verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, look at it, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's, that's a reference to the activity of Satan and Satan's angels or Satan's Demons, in this satanic activity, it seemed the biblical truth that sin is sometimes used by God as its own punishment. That is, God would bring judgment against Rome here in the book of Revelation and allowing the empire to sink deeper into sin. And as they became more depraved, life would lose all meaning. Many would seek to escape from their miserable existence. 
But as long as they continued in sin, it would not be possible for them to do so. Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, In those days men will seek death and they will not find it, and they will long to die and death flees from them. They're looking for an escape from the misery of their lives, but they're looking in all the wrong places. They're not going to find what they're looking for until they lift their eyes up and they see Jesus. And there's a good lesson in that for us as well. So sin and its consequences are depicted in horrific terms. Satan is the catalyst behind all sin. But in spite of this, and here's the power of this this point, the devil's power is inferior to that of God's angels. And I think that's the meaning of the reference at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. What is being revealed in this passage is that, is that when Rome fell, Satan's power to deceive other nations through that mighty empire was taken away completely. That's what's signified by the thousand years. The number thousand, one thousand, is used to denote completeness. Satan would be rendered completely ineffective in his ability to deceive other nations through Rome, when the empire ceased to exist. Nations were deceived during the time of the Roman Empire into believing that the Roman emperor truly was divine, as evidenced by the power of the great empire over which he ruled. But when the empire fell, the nations could see that the emperor was not divine. He was just another man who had risen to a position of earthly power. And in the end, Satan will be judged by God and cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. However, after the fall of Rome and prior to that time, the devil will continue to deceive nations into disbelieving in the greatness and sovereignty of Almighty God. And we say that today. Satan is, is, is continuing to work among nations to break down faith in God. He's, he's, he's being given free reign in this country, I'm afraid. As already noted, the angels of God played a role in the execution of judgment against Rome. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. When Rome fell, the angels' God-given power over Satan was manifest. Notice that this angel received authority in Revelation chapter 20. He received authority or power over the abyss, verse 1. Note the reference to the key, which is a symbol of authority. And that authority came from God. So the real message is that Christ and his kingdom conquered over the satanic Roman Empire. Now, the encouraging point in this is that Satan's power is inferior to that of God's angelic beings. You mean the angelic beings that are ministering servants who were sent out for the benefit of those who will inherit salvation? You mean those servants that themselves profess to be our fellow servants? Yes. You mean those those angels that are, are, are at work behind the scenes engaged in spiritual warfare on our behalf? You mean they have more power than Satan? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I mean. The Bible teaches that if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. I believe in our resistance, the angels find strength to wage that spiritual battle behind the scenes. I believe in our prayers the angels find strength to wage war on our behalf. 
Let's move into our next point. Angels play a role in, in prayer. We've already seen this in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, where in response to the prayer of Daniel, the angel Gabriel was sent to the prophet to give the prophet insight and understanding. Let me, let me say again, I'm not teaching that we are to pray to angels. I've never prayed to an angel, and I never will. When I pray, I don't open my eyes up and look for an angel. I don't, I don't stand still and see if I can smell the angel. I don't, I don't just listen and see if I can hear them rustling around in the leaves in response to my prayer. That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's, that's not the way I, I see the angels at, at work. But notice again, remember Acts chapter 10? What did that angel say to Cornelius in that vision? Why was this vision being experienced by Cornelius? It was because the angel said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's very similar to what happened in the case of Daniel. Daniel was praying. And you remember how that angel came and said, three weeks ago you started praying. And from the moment you started praying, I was sent to you. So an angel of God was sent in response to Daniel's prayer, and an angel of God here is sent in response to the prayer of Cornelius. Now you say, does that mean that when I pray, I can expect an angel to show up on my doorstep? I don't believe that. I look at this the same way I look at the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit, and I've got a series of lessons on that too, and you think you feel uncomfortable with this series, you should hear that one. I believe the Holy Spirit works today in our lives, and I'm going to open up Pandora's box with this. I might get invited back with this one. In more ways than just through the Word. I've heard that ever since I obeyed the gospel. I believe that is a limiting statement. I think we're putting the Holy Spirit in a box when we use language like that. And And... And I want to tell you, I can prove from Scripture. Don't ask me to do it tonight. I'm too tired. I'm too tired and I'm too full to think. I've been full since Sunday afternoon. <laughs> too tired and too full to think after this, this sermon. But uh, the Holy Spirit is a very powerful resource for the Christian. Now, does that mean that the Holy Spirit works today the way he did during the first century? No. I don't believe that we have miraculous powers. I don't think that I'm... And I don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as did the first century disciples, but I do believe the Holy Spirit is at work in my life in a different way, in a different measure. Let's, let's take that idea and apply it to, to, to angels. If I pray, is God going to send an angel to me? Is the angel going to show up on my doorstep? I don't believe that. But if angels are ministering spirits and if they are agents of God's providence, then when I pray... I do not believe it is beyond the realm of possibility that God might send an angel or angels to work behind the scenes providentially in response to my prayer. We've got to go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation, chapter 6. Well, let's go to chapter 8 first, and then we'll go back to chapter 6. In the 8th chapter of the book of Revelation, we see the breaking of the seventh seal. Christ was the only one in heaven 
who had the authority to break these seals. And this is a, a progressive unfolding of God's revelation. And with the seventh seal, this is what we see in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of the, all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Let's go over to chapter 6. Keep your finger there on chapter 8, and we'll go to chapter 6. And I want you to notice where we see prayers of the disciples. And ask the question, what are they praying about? Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I believe that's the key passage to the book of Revelation. Because what that is, is the prayer of those who are being persecuted by the Romans. And they're saying, God, how long are you going to allow this to continue? And the book of Revelation is the answer to that question. God lets those persecuted disciples know, I'm going to bring about a mighty judgment against the Roman Empire. This will not continue. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It is God's response to the prayers of disciples during the first century who are being persecuted by this evil empire. God used angels to execute his judgment against that empire to knock off Satan, to prove his power over Satan, and all that, listen to it, all that in response to the prayers of the saints. Revelation chapter 8, we continue the reading, verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. That's the language of judgment. The angels are at work in bringing the, the prayers of the disciples to God with God's response of judgment against the Roman Empire. What's the point of all this? It can be seen that prayer prompted a response from an angel in some way. Under the direction of God. Under the instructions of God. Now again, angels are not going to speak directly to us in our time. But this does not preclude the possibility that angels react under God's direction in response to the prayers of saints. And as we've seen numerous times in, in this study, it doesn't seem to be unreasonable, does it? to conclude that God's providential response to the prayers of his children might be carried out through the work of angels. Angels will accompany Christ at his return. We've already seen that. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the tares and the, uh, the wheat. Chapter 16, verse 27. Chapter 25, 31 through 32. Uh, terrible judgment scene. But you see that the angels are there with Christ when he returns. And they are at work with him in the execution of judgment. Angels protect those who trust in God. I've got just a couple more points, and then we'll close. Psalm chapter 91. 
is a psalm, a passage of Scripture that was used by Satan, misapplied by Satan, in his temptation of Christ. Psalm chapter 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He's talking about one who's walking with God and the protection of God over that one. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And then in verse 11, here's the familiar text that was quoted by Satan. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You, you will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Now go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's see how the devil used this passage. And then let's see how Christ used it for his response. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil took Jesus in verse 5 to, into the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Because this is the promise of God in Psalm chapter 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He said the devil misused that passage. The devil said, What that teaches, Lord, what that teaches Jesus is, that if, if you throw yourself down from this building, the angels are going to catch you, and they're going to keep you from splattering yourself on the ground. Jesus' response was, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is why I, I, I reemphasize when I make points such as angels protect those who trust in God. That's, that's not a blank check. That's not a blank check. That doesn't mean I can get on my motorcycle, drive 120 miles, down, 120 miles an hour down the interstate in the wrong lane, Made a truck head on, and an angel's going to save them. No, that's, that's not the way the, the angels work. But again, if I trust in God, and, and I can't trust in God without trusting in his providence. And I have to believe, again, forgive me for being so redundant, but if I believe that the angels are agents of God's providence, then I have to believe that they are being used by God to protect those who put their trust in him. Well, that begs the question, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's just part of the order of things. Just because something bad happens to me doesn't mean that, that my angel retired before it happened. It doesn't mean that my angel was taking a nap when it happened. Just because something bad happens to me, it doesn't mean that, that the angels are unconcerned. It doesn't mean that God's unconcerned. It just means that it's a part of God's order of things. Angels receive those who die in the Lord. We saw that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and as you consider that, think about the life he lived, that is, Lazarus. If, if you someday want to experience, and if, if I don't know enough about death because I hadn't been there, to, to speak on this, but if, if we can have some thought before we take our last breath 
my thought will be, I can't wait to see those angels. I can't wait to experience what that's like. When I breathe my last breath and I open my eyes in that new realm and there are those angels waiting to take me to paradise. Consider the life that Lazarus lived and compare your life to it. There was nothing pleasant about his life. Nothing pleasant about his life. The only thing that was good about Lazarus' life was his faith in God. And it was his faith in God that led him to that point where those angels ushered him into paradise. And then finally, angels witness the activities of the church. The angels are watching. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul was writing about the salvation that comes through the gospel message preached and the, the mystery that had been revealed by God in Christ. He says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Every time someone obeys the gospel, those rulers, those authorities, those angelic beings in the heavenly places Witness the wisdom of God. They see God's wisdom. How can they see that if they can't see us? How can they witness that if they're not watching us? First Timothy chapter 5. And this will be our last verse tonight. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. He charged them in the presence of God. God was watching. He charged them in the presence of Christ Jesus. Christ was watching. And he charged them in the presence of his cho chosen angels. They were watching. They were watching the activities of the church. So what do you think? You think living around all that fertilizer and stuff made me go crazy? <laughs> living out where they I bet I bet not too many of you uh get to smell chicken manure on your neighbor's yard like I do. Maybe all that's gone to my head. I appreciate your patience and your your attention during this series. I appreciate the, the words of encouragement, and I will say again, if any of this has made you feel uncomfortable, then just study it. Study it. Learn what the Bible has to say about these angelic beings. But just look forward to the future when whatever questions we have will be answered because someday we'll be there. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your patience.